Welcome to episode 594 of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. We're talking about Monster Kid Radio, and I'm your writer, host, producer, Derek M. Cook. Welcome to the show. I'm happy to have you here. Thank you for tuning in. Speaking of tuning in, let's tune into some music. Right now, you are listening to the song Out Cold. It's from the band. Bloodshot Bill. It's from their album Songs from the Sludge. You can find them at bloodshotbill.bandcamp.com. Check them out when you're done listening to this episode of the podcast. I'm excited about this week's podcast because I'm going old school, man. I'm going back to one of the building blocks of, well, me as a monster kid. When we think classic monster movies, we think Universal. I mean, that's just the bottom line. Universal really was kind of the thing, right? Universal's monsters define so much of what we do here. And I wanted to get back to the Universal. It's been too long, so let's talk about House of Dracula. No, 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 don't go anywhere. Trust me. It's a better movie than you might think. I've actually warmed up to it quite a bit over the years, and it's a great conversation with Stephen D. Sullivan. All right, yeah, I thought that would keep you here. Steve and I are going to talk about House of Dracula. Plus... It's not an episode of Monster Kid Radio without Mark Manske's Beta Capsule Review, Kenny's look at Famous Monsters Filmland, and a tiny bit of feedback. It's time. It's time? Yes. It's time. It's It's time time for Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio Radio Mail Call. This email comes in response to one of Kenny's segments. Kenny recently talked about the TV movie or presentation or short film Halloween Planet, which he hadn't seen, I hadn't seen, I mentioned how I wanted to see it, that sort of thing. Well, Brian S. wrote in and says, I'm sure somebody else has already written in. Well, that's not true. Nobody else has. So you're the first. I'm sure somebody else has pointed out that Halloween Planet is an extra on the 25th anniversary DVD of The Alien Dead. Not a really cheap disc anymore, but available used for around $20. Take care. You know, that kind of makes sense. Since Halloween Planet and The Alien Dead both were created or or fronted by Fred Olin Ray. I don't own The Alien Dead on DVD. I, I wish I did, actually, because now I want to see this Halloween Planet thing, man. If anybody has seen it or has a lead on it, I'd love to see it. Or... I'd love to hear about it. Maybe call in and let me know how it is. If you want to be cool like Brian, you can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or you can call and leave us a voicemail at our voicemail line 360-524-2484. White Zombie. A new novelization of the classic horror movie from award-winning author Stephen D. Sullivan. Available now in print and all ebook formats. Find it on Amazon, Smashwords, Drive Through Fiction, 
and other quality outlets, also available in a special edition, including the complete movie script. Grab White Zombie before it grabs you. Details at sdsullivan.com. for 200 years that creeps its way back to terrorize the living. The terrifying horror of a dreaded man called Dr. Terror who, with his deck of mystic cards, could foretell destiny. Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. A sepia-toned montage reviewing Ultra 7's powers and abilities turns out to be an alien conference, the main topic of which is the Seven Assassination Plan in the series' 39th episode. Although plagued by a rash of false alarms, Dan and Anne are sent on a nighttime investigation where Dan is confronted by alien guts who make the bold claim that they have never lost in any sort of fight. Dan activates Capsule Monster Wyndham, but is shocked when the robot is destroyed by an alien guts laser beam. The Ultra Guard swoops in to rescue Dan and Anne but the alien guts lure Ultra Seven into a direct confrontation which ends with Seven trapped in a transparent cross. TDF ground forces engage in a pitched battle with a guts flying saucer, but the alien craft easily repels their barrage and commences to announce the execution of Ultra Seven at dawn of the next day. As the guard wrestles with the question of how to help Seven, Anne advocates for locating Dan, but the discussion is interrupted by news that a mysterious tone was being broadcast using the TDF space station circuits. Will Dawn bring the execution of Ultra Seven and the ruin of humanity? An honest-to-goodness cliffhanger, episode 39 rockets along at a breakneck pace and presents the unthinkable, an opponent in alien guts that outmatches Ultra 7 at every turn. Screenwriter Kaisuke Fujikawa expertly builds tension throughout the episode while focusing on the Anne and Dan dynamic, giving the high stakes a personal edge. This is a visually rich experience, from the stylized introduction to the alien guts design, but nothing else is quite as striking as the cruciform Ultra 7 floating against a blood-red sunset in what is likely the series' most iconic image. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting.
horror. <laughs> the Masters of Horror present the masterpieces of screen horror from 20th Century Fox, Frankenstein Created Woman, and The Mummy's Shroud. Frankenstein, now he has created his most diabolical horror. The ultimate in evil, a beautiful woman with the soul of the devil. Then, beware the beat of the cloth-wrapped feet. Beware the mummy shroud. The ultimate in evil, the absolute in terror from the Shockmasters. Together in the same double shock show. Frankenstein created woman and the mummy's shroud in dripping, dripping color. Tales of horror that will give you the creeps. This is going to be extremely painful, Mr. Verrill. <laughs> the most fun you'll ever have being scared. Creep show rated R. Now playing at a theater near you. Five years ago, the Lutz family fled their home in Amityville, New York. They were lucky to escape with their lives. But the previous owners, the Montellis, weren't so lucky. They were caught by the original evil that possessed the house. An evil that drove their son to destroy everything and everyone he loved. Now... Amityville 2, The Possession, rated R. Start tomorrow, AFCO Westwood, Paramount Hollywood, and selected theaters. Hello there, Monster Kid Radio Hits. This is Kenny with a look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. This is part three of our Halloween celebration, and today we are going to look at the third part of a trilogy named after the popular holiday. Michael Myers is back. Or is he? Let's find out how FM 189 from the fall of 1983 answered that question in its five-page article with eight photos. Sequel Mania No, Sequel Mania isn't the title of a new terror flick. It's the name of a game that's played in Hollywood. The rules are simple. If a movie makes lots of money, do more like it. If a movie makes incredible amounts of money, do the same thing over again. More than any other film buffs, monster movie fans have suffered sequels which are inferior to the originals and at the same time beat their themes to death. Some exceptions. The Bride of Frankenstein, which many fantasy film followers feel is superior to the original. Superman 2, a film that lacked the drama and characterization of its predecessor but made up for it in the action department. The Empire Strikes Back, an extension rather than a rehash of Star Wars. But the list of less than satisfactory sequels is far, far longer. Just a few titles would be Son of Kong, whose story was not a rerun of the original, but whose leading ape was but a pale shadow of his great pop. Christopher Lee's later Dracula films, like The Satanic Rites of Dracula. Hammer's last Frankenstein pictures, such as The Horror of Frankenstein. The Universal Monster Fests of the 1940s, including The Ghost of Frankenstein and Son of Dracula. If Halloween 2 was a disappointment to people who wanted to see the saga take a few new turns, it was not a letdown as far as the public was concerned. Halloween 2 was a moneymaker, so it was no surprise when a third Halloween picture was announced. What was a surprise, and a pleasant one, is that the film is an original. It goes in an entirely different direction from the first two films. 
leaving the shape in the grave and returning to the supernatural meaning of the holiday itself. The decision to go ahead with the new picture was made on the Sunday after Halloween 2's Friday opening. The box office results had been so spectacular that producer Dino De Laurentiis said to co-producer Deborah Hill, let's do another one, let's do three. And so they did. But Hill and her partner in the first two films, John Carpenter, did not merely want to rehash the same story. Nor did they want to use the same cast. A risky move in that too many moviegoers, the first two films were distinguished by the terrorized presence of Jamie Lee Curtis. However, the duo felt that not only had they milked the format of a lunatic on the loose versus a panicked female, but other movie makers had done so well in such efforts as Terror Train starring Miss Curtis, He Knows You're Alone, Deadly Blessing, and many, many more. They had to try something new and different. Screenwriter Nigel Neal happened to be in Los Angeles at this time, holding script conferences at Universal Pictures for their planned remake of The Creature from the Black Lagoon, which is presently on hold but will one day be directed by Joe Dante, former FM contributor and the man who made us howl with The Howling. Since Universal was the studio backing the new Halloween film, it's no surprise that Neil's name came up as a potential scripter. Nor was the British writer exactly a novice in this field. He has written the screenplays for such classics as The Creeping Unknown, Enemy from Space, and Five Million Years to Earth, the legendary science fiction films featuring the headstrong Professor Quatermass, Ray Harryhausen's underrated film version of H.G. Wells' classic novel First Men in the Moon, the teleplay for the abominable snowman of the Himalayas, a BBC cast which was made into the best of the Yeti films and starred fantasy film veteran Peter Cushing. Neil delved into the origins of Halloween itself and the ancient and mystical powers of Stonehenge in England, throwing in a modern throwing in a modernistic slant of computer technology to complete his wicked brew. The results are fresh, fascinating, and frightening. The article continues with a synopsis of the film and then concludes with this. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, began its principal photography on April 19th of this year, shooting on a six-week schedule and finishing on time on May 28th. The $2.5 million spent on the film is the lowest possible still using a union crew, which has minimum wage requirements. The talent of the filmmakers ensured that the movie looked much more expensive than that. One of the assets in achieving this goal was the selection of the town used to represent the fictitious Santa Mira. The site was Loleta in Northern California, a city selected after some 1,500 miles of California country was scoured by the producers. Hill states that for the week the crew spent shooting there, it was not at all difficult to imagine that the events described in the screenplay were real. There was something mysterious about Loleta, she says with a shudder. The performers in Halloween 3 are from varied backgrounds, two of them being no strangers to the fantasy film genre. Tom Atkins, the film's Dr. Chalice, first worked with both Deborah Hill and John Carpenter on The Fog, in which Jamie Lee Curtis also starred. His other roles include a featured part in Carpenter's Escape from New York and in George Romero's horror omnibus film, Creepshow. Diane O'Harely, who plays Cochran, starred in the doomsday thriller Failsafe and co-starred with Orson Welles as Banquo's ghost and the three witches in the film version of Macbeth. Stacey Nelkin as Ellie is the only newcomer to the horror fantasy scene, 
Her previous films include Mad Magazine's Up the Academy and the real-life horror film The Triangle Factory Fire Scandal. John Carpenter was busy with The Thing and, unable to direct this picture, handed the task to his lifelong friend Tommy Lee Wallace. They grew up together in Bowling Green, Kentucky and attended school together at USC. Wallace was the production designer on Carpenter's first film, Dark Star, and worked as the editor on both Halloween and The Fog. He worked the screenplay for Dino De Laurentiis' horror film Amityville, The Possession, a sequel to the successful Amityville horror. Apart from being that rarity, a good sequel, Halloween 3 is historic in another way. It has what must be the weightiest, most complicated above the title credit line of all time. Here it is, for your amusement and enlightenment. Universal Pictures presents a Mustafa Akkad presentation. A Dino de Alarantes Corporation film. A John Carpenter Deborah Hill production. A film by Tommy Lee Wallace. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. That is all for this week's spooky look at Famous Monsters of Filmland. We will have more next week. For MKR, this is Kenny saying adios. Sometime in the near future, when we least expect it, they will come. Five million years to Earth, cities will burn. Mankind will panic. Our world will tremble. When it occurs, you will see men turned killers by mysterious power. I wanted to kill you. Why? Because you are different. Women will be defiled by the invaders from outer space. It's Barbara. She's the one. It could happen in your lifetime. See five million years to Earth before it's too late. One hundred thousand years ago, it came to our galaxy. Trapped in the wasteland of Antarctica, it could not escape. Now, it is free to become one of us. John Carpenter's The Thing, rated R. This is Count Vlad, but you may recognize me by my more familiar name, Count Dracula, and I'm here to offer you a friendly warning. Derek and his guests often get excited, and occasionally this results in revealing key plot points of the movies they're discussing. In your parlance, you might call these revelations spoilers. You know how the children of the night Ah, I mean monster kids can get sometimes. So consider yourself warned, and don't come begging to me to kill them for their transgressions afterward. I have more pressing issues to take care of, like that pesky Van Helsing.
So in just over a year and a handful of days since the release of House of Frankenstein, Universal released what many consider the last of the Monster Rally films or the Universal Cycle, and we'll talk about whether or not that's true. And that movie was House of Dracula, which is the movie that we're going to be talking about today. Now, we did talk briefly about it on the show many, many moons ago when I had Frank Dietz on the show to talk about House of Frankenstein and kind of dovetailed into House of Dracula a little bit. But I want to give some shine to House of Dracula directly, and I want to do it with Stephen D. Sullivan, the man who is joining me this week on the show, welcome back to Monster Kid Radio. It's not been a year and a handful of days <laughs> it, since I've had you on. It just feels like it, because every week without being on Monster Kid Radio is like a month. So, <laughs> is that MKR oh, years then? Hey, it's, in, in it's great podcasting to be back. That, years. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Pod years. <laughs> uh, so, House of Dracula, man. This, this is one that I, I want to talk about, and I want to talk about your connection to it, because you brought up both of the House movies when we were talking recently, and that's what kind of prompted me to want to do House of Dracula. But I want to give you a few minutes. The floor is yours. What's going on with Stephen D. Sullivan, man? What's going on right now is I am finishing what I hope will be the final draft of my upcoming werewolf book before sending that to the licensor to make sure that they approve it, uh, which would lead to releasing it early next year, I hope. Or certainly before. I, it's a, It would be a great Halloween release, but I would hate to hold it for six months to do that, so... <laughs> cross your fingers and hopefully by summer the werewolf book will be out so there's that monster shark on a nude beach continues to run on amazon's kindle vela program uh new episodes of that every two weeks you've uh, been playing some of the commercials that i did for it mm-hmm. on this on monster kid radio and on your stream so there's that and it's Halloween season, so soon there will be a new Frost Arrow story, a new original Frost Arrow story up on my site that I haven't written yet. So that's on the <laughs> that's on the near horizon. And of course, Atomic Tales continues coming out every month from me and from St. Euphoria Productions and Christopher R. Mim. And I'm I continue to have a blast with that. All right. So that's record plenty, time. right? <laughs> right, record time uh, for Steve's moment of pitching. Um, <laughs> SDSullivan.com, SteveNDSullivan.com, PaySteve.com. Uh, of course, links in the show notes. Every time we have somebody on the show and they've got a website or something to promote, and in Steve's case, there's a lot to promote. Always. Sure there's, a, there's a chunk there, so please go support. Steve, when you're done listening to this episode of MKR, especially if you happen to like what he says, about House of Dracula. So Steve told me about how he first came across or, or a connection that he has to House of Dracula via Famous Monsters of Filmland. And I sent that information off to Kenny. Did someone mention Famous Monsters of Filmland? So let's take a look at what young Steve Sullivan saw in early 1967 when he came upon the House of Dracula feature in Famous Monsters 43. It was a whopping 18 pages long with 35, count them, 35 pictures. Was Steve inspired by the writing? I am reminded of his adaptions of White Zombie and Mano's Hands of Fate. The article is a detailed film book, the plot of the film in the form of an illustrated short story. Let's hear how our favorite monsters were introduced to get an idea what young Sullivan read. First up, Dracula. 
He whirled then, and the knowledge was ice in his breast, even before he met the mocking, luminous eyes of the strange figure and saw the identical Dracula crest on the ring of the one who had called himself Baron Latos. Yes, doctor, doubt if you will, but you see before you a man who has lived through the centuries on the blood of helpless, innocent victims. That is why I have come here, knowing of your studies, to plead with you for some release from the dread curse that enslaves me. Edelman swayed dazedly. Legend says a vampire must return to the soil of his grave before sunrise. In that coffin, Dracula snarled, is the soil of my birthplace. I need only return here before the rays of the sun can touch me, and I am safe. A pleading note came into his voice. But you must save me. You have done so much for others. Next, the Wolfman. Inside, Edelman stared sadly at the young, handsome figure behind the bars. Only horror in the man's face marred the pleasant lines of his youthful face. At the sight of Edelman, he cried, It's too late! I went to plead for your help, but it's too late now. The moon is rising, and when it rises full, I'll turn into a beast, a werewolf, whose one desire is to kill, kill. Now, now, Edelman soothed, you're imagining. Before he could say more, a ray of the full moon crept into the cell, and in its weird blue light he saw the horror. For the moonlight fell on Larry Talbot. A terrible shriek was torn from his throat. Then he fell to the floor writhing, and before their horrified gaze, the change took place. In cold horror, Edelman saw the young face turn bestial, saw the long fangs jut from slavering jaws, saw the coarse hair spring from the smooth young hands whose nails were suddenly terrible talons flexed with the lust to rend a human flesh. Last but not least, Frankenstein's monster. Suddenly, a low moaning cry escaped Talbot's lips. Following his pointing finger, Dr. Edelman felt his hackles rising. There, in the soft ooze of the cavern's floor, lay a hideous monstrosity, a grotesque mockery of tortured humanity, Glenn Strange. The monster, Edelman gasped, the Frankenstein monster. I knew that many years ago Dr. Neiman revitalized it, but then they both disappeared near this castle. That skeleton nearby must be Neiman, destroyed by his rash recreation. A surge of flaming excitement swept him up. Where he failed, I can succeed. I shall bring the monster to life and learn from him the eternal secrets of life and death. Young Steve must have especially been thrilled by the fantastic photos, a combination of behind-the-scenes pictures, publicity shots, and scenes from the movie. All the monsters are featured on the first page with a reprint of a classic poster. We then find four pictures of John Carradine's Dracula, five pictures of Lon Chaney's Wolfman, and 16 photos of Glenn Strange's Frankenstein. Jane Addams' Hunchback and Onslow Stevens' Mad Scientist are also featured prominently. My favorites are the candid behind-the-scenes shots. One has Glenn Strange's Frankie with Andy Devine's Young Sons, and another with a smiling Jane Addams hugging Frankenstein. We also have a shot of Lon Chaney helping Glenn with his outfit a shot of Onslow Stevens making up his identical twin stunt double, and Lon Chaney's stand-in offering water via straw to the Wolfman. With all that, it's no wonder Steve became a fan of the movie before even seeing it. Let's hear what else he has to say about that. Yeah, I first 
encountered House of Dracula's and were in the first issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland that I ever bought, which I think was issue 43. It's got a painting of Christopher Lee's Dracula. I now realized didn't at the time climbing out of a coffin. And I thought, boy, didn't I read about a first in Famous Monsters? And when I looked it up online, I was like, holy cow, it was in the first Famous Monsters that I ever saw, the first one I ever read. And it has a long, I guess it's a film book. It's like a breakdown of the entire movie done in chapters, like a, like a mini novel. He used to have a word for that, I think, and I can't remember what it was. Uh, he Some being, of the famous monsters used to do, yeah, quite a bit. Yeah, I think he called them film books or something. Forrest Ackerman had a, a title for that, and and maybe Kenny could tell us if we don't or if we, it doesn't pop into our heads. But anyway, I looked at it last night and I was like, wow, this is really cool. And this is, and boy, the wave of nostalgia <laughs> that yeah. watched over me at that point was just uh, almost overwhelming. Yeah, Very so cool. that's, that's a yeah, it's a, a strange connection, and I didn't when I used the internet to look up what issue of Famous Monsters the House of Dracula was in. I had no idea it was the first one that I'd ever seen. I just remembered it, and maybe the memory that's is really so vivid cool. because it was that first exposure, as opposed to the years that follow, where I had a, a subscription to Famous Monsters and that kind of stuff. Right on, man. That's awesome. Yeah, Famous Monsters memories are almost always super cool. Uh, which is not something that I have any of. <laughs> because by the time I started embracing all of this, I know, you Famous Monsters was run by uh, Ray Ferry, and, you know, yeah, there, there's a whole bunch of drama there. So, uh, although interesting news regarding Famous Monsters, have you seen that somebody picked up the brand? No. That it's it's going to be making a comeback, hopefully. Cool. Which would be kind of cool. Uh, who was it? I'm going to double check. They just announced it, too, which I thought was kind of cool. Corey Taylor, who is from the front man of the band Slipknot, now owns Famous Monsters. <laughs> I'm assuming he's going to do magazines and everything else with it, but he's a monster kid, so I'm glad somebody who is invested in this kind of stuff owns the brand now, and I hope we continue to see some classic stuff. Magazines yeah, anyway, are a cool way cool. to learn about monster movies in the days before we had streaming or even DVDs or even videotapes. It was about the only way you could learn about these things. And then if you were lucky, you could find them in a revival theater or some Halloween night. I remember the first time I saw the Wolfman was at, I think I was in junior high, but it was at the high school in town. They had a, a Halloween movie night one year. They had uh, I think Abner Costello meet Frankenstein, uh, which we'll probably mention later. And they had the Wolfman and they had a bunch of those. I don't remember if it was the Castle Company. There's some company that put out condensed versions of monster movies. Yeah. And, and one of the ones they did was Revenge of the Creature. And I remember, I think there were maybe a couple of others, but I remember seeing the 10 minute version of Revenge of the Creature that night. And it was pretty cool. Castle films, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it yeah. was, and not no relation to William Castle. But no, Castle were no. the they were the ones that would sell them to you, and I assume that may have been the same people that provided them to schools and libraries and stuff. But I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't know. But again, another cool experience that I never got. <laughs> oh, I'm so sad. Ah, it is what it is, man. But on it the other hand, you grew up with videotapes. You know, it's not the same, dude. 
it, no, I know it's not the same. I and and for where I was when I was growing up, it's not like this stuff was on the shelf. Um, you know, we've talked a lot. Beth and I have talked a lot about the differences between my upbringing and her upbringing, and I think you and I have even talked a little bit, too, in regards to the satanic panic and where I lived at the time and what I was surrounding myself with at the time. I didn't have access to a lot of this monster stuff. I had the Crestwood House books. Right. That was pretty much it. Which I didn't even um, hear of until you started talking about them. Right. And now you've got a complete set, and I still only have, like... <laughs> <laughs> I think I do, because at the, right at the beginning of the panic before... Uh, the panic the pandemic before they got really expensive that was like my way of not going insane during the start of the pandemic was trying to sure. find the ones i didn't have and pick them up for less than an arm and a leg you know it it all goes back to famous monsters because so many of the photos provided to the publishers for those books came from ackerman the man behind famous monsters so you know, it all kind of comes together and, and goes back to FM. I mean, even the myth that there were two different versions of King Kong versus Godzilla get reprinted in Crestwood House, which was, again, a myth that was popularized by FM. Right. So, yep. Yep. Fari put that out there. Even yeah. It's completely not true. Not true one bit. <laughs> so, uh, but that, mean, you know, that's yeah. those are the kind of things that happen when you're putting out a monthly magazine or, you know, an, an old newspaper or whatever. There was always column inches to fill and so speculation would suddenly become fact <laughs> because you put them sure. down in print and people are like hey you can't print it if it's not true well that's never been that's never been true <laughs> right all you need to print something is a printing press truth Media, is not a requirement you know it's kind of sort of related how many people still believe that the world of the world's radio broadcast can cause mass hysteria but really, that was the newspapers really kind of exaggerating all that. And if it was in print, well, obviously it was true, but was it really? Right. Not to that extent. Yeah, it was small. But the newspaper said it was. <laughs> you know, there, there were definitely there were definitely people that were upset about that. Uh, but, but the newspapers had a vested interest in, you know, don't trust the radio, trust the newspaper. See, yeah. radio can cause panic. We didn't <laughs> do that. So Not us. Yeah. Not me. <laughs> <laughs> so... Anyway, yeah, uh, I, I find don't know it fascinating. Are there, any, are there any myths about the House of Dracula? I don't know. Nothing that on that scale. I mean, there are people that have certain beliefs and, and such regarding the film, which is something I want to talk about. And I mentioned this earlier. There are some folks who consider this the last of the big universal stuff and uh, don't consider Abbott and Costello and Frankenstein part of the canon or the cycle. The continuity. But I disagree. I know you do. Uh, <laughs> and, and and you do too, I believe, right? Oh, I actually, in Steve's personal timeline of the Universal films, how the Abbott and Costello film is somewhere before the Wolfman is cured in the yes spoilers, which, which is a, which is a popular take in the end is of that, House of Dracula. Yeah, because there is a there is a discontinuity between. House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula. I'm sure we'll talk about it a little later. So sure, it's it's because he's got a mustache. That's the biggest thing, right? <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's the problem. <laughs> it's it's the Cheney mustache. It's so. the Cheney mustache. So Cheney, okay, I, I want to address that real quick. There there is a mustache here. This is the only time Talbot has a mustache, uh, and it's basically because Lon Cheney Jr. had been spending the past what eight movies 
doing Inner Sanctum films right. where he yeah, wore was, the mustache. I was so. going to guess that that was the reason. I was like, could it have anything to do with the Inner Sanctum films? Yeah, all these Inner Sanctum films, which are amazing, especially a weird woman. I really like calling Dr. Death, though, too. That one's really good, too. Yeah, I like the whole series. They're really, really amusing. Weird Woman is oh, the one that's kind of above the, all the others because tops. it's based on a great novel. But Yeah. Uh, but and, and we have talked about Inner Sanctum movies as a whole here on the podcast in the past, but I wouldn't mind revisiting them at some point because they are that good. But Lachini Jr. finally got to play this this tragic romantic lead in a lot of those movies, which is something that he wanted to do. Yes. Universal he... still painted it with kind of a suspense thriller horror brush, but he still got a chance to do some of that. And part of that involved having that mustache. Right. And he got to, he got to stretch a little bit. Although, you know. Sure. The Wolfman is such a great acting job and it's it's his iconic role. I could see wanting to expand beyond that, but it's not like that's a bad role to have. It's not, the Wolfman has a lot more breath than Christopher Lee's portrayal of Dracula, who spends a lot of time kind of frowning and growling Mm -hmm. and, you know, doesn't even speak in one of my favorite films. And I, so I can understand Christopher Lee getting tired of kind of parading around in the Cape and going, oh, you shall do this, let people do that. But the Wolfman actually has some debts, you know, especially coming from the first film, the first two films where he's got a range of emotions and Mm -hmm. he really gets a a good part to chew on, as it were. So I'm a little less sympathetic that the Wolfman's not a great part because I think the Wolfman is a great part. It's probably the greatest part in the the universal camp. I think it's the one that really stands out as as a a rounded character, as a human being among the monsters. And that's nothing against uh, Karloff's portrayal of the Frankenstein monster, which is amazing, or Lugosi's portrayal of Igor, which is also amazing. Yeah, no, and and he really does bring so much emotional depth and weight to the character. There's a moment in House of Dracula where a nurse is talking Dr. Naaman, or Edelman, excuse me. (laughs) First time I made that mistake, I'll probably make it three or four more times. There's a nurse telling Dr. Edelman that there was a man here and he seemed so <laughs> tragic and so lost and, and just he really needed help. It was so obvious. Well, that nurse was speaking redundantly because Lon Chaney did that. I mean, it was nice that he, she said it, sure. But we already got that. And yeah. Right. Right. Although there is, you know, sure. it is some kind of foreshadowing what's otherwise a, a fairly mm-hmm. brief uh, experience in the film. And there, there's a lot of the film, I, I noticed when I rewatched it last night, there's a lot of the film where they're kind of telling you stuff that maybe you, maybe you could figure out on your own from what else was going around in the, sure. in the story, but they want to make sure you get the point. <laughs> so Lon comes in, he plays the tragic character, and he leaves. And the, then the nurse says, he seems so haunted. He seems so, so sad. And, yeah. and Edelman's like, yeah. oh, maybe he'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> busy doctor. We get that. That's uh, some things never change, right? The doctors are always busy. So, but yeah, but you're, you're right. The, in some ways that little speech is unnecessary because we've already gotten that from how oh, yeah. Jamie's portrayed it. Well, that, I mean, he really gives that character's so good own. I mean, I think he's gone on record as saying that that's, that's his guy. That's, you know, he can't imagine anybody else playing him either. And I, I can't, 
I wouldn't want to see anybody else trying to take on that character. It's it's just so much what he brings to the table. The visual, the design, the Jack Pierce makeup looks cool. But if you don't have Chaney grounding it, it's not nearly as good. Which is why the Wolfman and the Wolfman series stands out among all other werewolf pictures, with the possible exception of Paul Nash's Valdemar Janitsky stories. And, and he was playing, he was reproducing yep. what he saw in yeah. Chaney when he was a kid, meaning Nashi was, that that part of the Wolfman touched him. And when he created the Daninsky character, he was recreating, mm-hmm. in a sense, the tragedy of, of the Wolfman and Larry Talbot. I, I don't think there's any question of that. And that's why, for me, the Daninsky series is my other favorite werewolf series. Uh, Easily above all, you know, I like the howling and all the, you know, a lot of the modern werewolf kind of stuff, but it's, it's Talbot and Daninsky for me, because those are the ones that had the, exactly. the werewolves yeah, that, you've that tug have at your heartstrings and make you feel for them. I feel like. You really do. Yeah. So this is the third time the monsters start to meet up. We, we first saw Frankenstein meet the Wolfman, then all three of them, you know, Dracula gets thrown into the mix with House of Frankenstein. In a weird kind of way. I, I enjoy House of Frankenstein quite a bit, mostly because I think Karloff is just amazing in that. Right. I was going to say the same thing. I like House of Frankenstein, but it is almost yeah. two or three little movies linked together by a travel by a traveling sideshow. Which would make a great anthology series. Somebody, yes. you know, and I know, <laughs> I even know that Universal, I think in the 90s, was it the 90s? They did a, a TV miniseries, House of Frankenstein, set in modern day or whatever, and they did a bunch of stuff. But no, nah, man, bring this back as an anthology series. Forget the Dark Universe stuff. Keep Tom Cruise away from it. Give me a House of <laughs> Anthology series. That would be amazing. I'd love to see that. Well, it, you know, and it could play really well on TV. I mean, we've just seen Werewolf yeah. by Night on tv for marvel and it's clear that if you do this well that it it can work on television Mm -hmm. even today with shaded audiences blah 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 which is world by night rocks it's a it's a very very cool revival of the idea and obviously jack russell the werewolf by night is yet another lon cheney larry talbot iteration Mm -hmm. uh, just just through a comics medium and and we love that too so So, I want to dovetail real quick because I'm going to be talking about this here in a future episode of Monster Kid Radio. But the folks over at Giant Freaking Robot at GiantFreakingRobot.com five days ago as of this recording posted an article called (laughs) Are the Universal Monsters Dead Forever? And they go through... Okay, so first... Oh. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) No. Okay. They, They aren't kind. The, the author of the article is not kind to our favorite universal monsters. And, um, well, you know, it's, I would, it's one I of would those have things. words. <laughs> it's one of those things. Well, you know, I mean, you can always leave comments in the comments, but comments are for cranks a lot of the time. So you could leave words there, but they won't do any good. Better oh to no, I'm just going to dedicate a whole episode to it. What are you talking right, about? Better I'm to just... write your own article to get a bunch of us on, <laughs> you know, me and a bunch of other people that vehemently dis- disagree with that idea and have us on and, and prove just how totally wrong they are. Yeah. So, uh, and I wasn't going to blow my own horn, but you know, I just, Fairly you got recently did Cushing, do Doctor Cushing, Chamber of Horrors, which is clearly a 
a tribute to the universal horror films as well as hammer horror films and the sequel if and when i get around to it is going to be even see you're going to get some of that traveling sideshow stuff going on from house of frankenstein even though i prefer house of dracula as a movie to sure house of frankenstein so yeah. how much time passes between house of frankenstein and house of dracula you think in terms of the story they say in the in the story Mm-hmm. They say that that Karloff's character, the Frankenstein monster, disappeared into the swamp years ago, right? So we know it's at least a couple of years, but it's unclear. Uh, I, they may have even said five or six years ago. I don't remember. You know, Universal liked to do time lapses in between their monster movies sometimes. I was about to say we're about to have a mummy situation. Right. Where... <laughs> in which 25 years passes between every mummy movie. So the last of the mummy movies is like in 2050 or something like that. Right? And geographically it changes too. Right. Yeah. And and yeah. they've done that again here too. They um, did. Um, I, I thought it would be interesting at one point to go through and create a massive timeline of the big three you know, monster project, you know, franchises, right? Dracula, Frankenstein, Wolfman. It just kind of lined things up. Now, mm-hmm. it got pretty crazy making, and if I didn't already shave my head, I'd be pulling my hair out trying to figure it out <laughs> because they of things like this. Plus, there aren't enough real touchstones to tell us, okay, this is when this movie took place. Right. When did Dracula happen? Well, right. You know, maybe we could look at a journal entry from the novel and maybe, I don't know, but so. Yeah, yeah I and I know. faced a similar kind of task with what you did. Trying to put the, the all the Valdemar Janiski films into, into a timeline so that there was some kind of continuity for the, the book that I'm working on right now. Yeah. And, and it was, it was torturous because like Paul Nashie doing those films, the Universal people didn't care about that they wanted enough of a touchstone so that you'd get the same audience back but they didn't they didn't really care about continuity as it were and this is different back then too because it's not like like you said earlier i had the i had vhs you had famous monsters magazine but back then you saw the movie a year ago it was remember what happened in it maybe it was one and done and Yeah. yeah exactly which is why all people complain about how terrible trailers are right now and trailers have always been terrible because they were always counting on you forgetting what you'd seen in the trailer trying to give you the most exciting stuff so you'd have the house falling down burning on the frankenstein monster in the trailer and then you'd forget that by the time you saw the film and would realize that that's actually the end of the film it's like oh that was the last shot in the film we just saw right (laughs) but back then the way things were people we're even less likely to remember the trailers are than they are now where obviously you can just watch them incessantly and say, Hey, wasn't there, wasn't Jern Urso supposed to be chased by a tie fighter during, you know, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> well, and even now we do that with trailers now too. Yes. You know, we, <laughs> nobody was watching the, the trailers were more disposable than the movies and the movies were disposable back then. So, right. Because yeah. And you were going to see them once and possibly never again, though Universal, God rest their soul, or God bless their souls, rather, did have a, a concept that they could resell these movies again, which they yeah. got from reselling Frankenstein at Dracula earlier. And I think that's one of the reasons when I was, when I fired up my Blu-ray of House of, Frank, House of Dracula last night, I watched House of Frankenstein too. And when I fired up the Blu-ray, I turned to my wife Kiff and I said, Look at this. It's gorgeous. 
And I think it's gorgeous as opposed to a lot of other films you see, because whatever you may think of the monster verse, how that's turned out, Universes has been a very good caretaker of their monster properties from the time they were created up to up to today once they realize they can still be marketed and exploited and still make money heck yeah right and and as a result they've taken really good care of them yep so we get these pristine beautiful blu-ray copies took them a while to do all the blu-rays but when they finally did took them a while but you know i mean the same thing was true when they put them on dvd it was like you roll them out slowly and Make sure that people are going to buy them and support them before you get yep. them up. When uh, I got the VHSs, it was during that uh, Universal Monster Collection. You know, I can still hear the voiceover. From, I'll even play the ad. Just why not? What the heck? <laughs> I bid you welcome. MCA Universal Home Video announces the Universal Studios Monsters Classic Collection. These are the titles monster fans have been waiting to sink their teeth into. Now, at the spectacular price of $14.98 each, suggested retail. Frankenstein. Dracula. The Wolfman. The Mummy. The Invisible Man. Creature from the Black Lagoon, The Phantom of the Opera, The Bride of Frankenstein, Son of Dracula, Son of Frankenstein, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, The Black Cat, The Raven, plus these new releases, the Spanish version of Dracula, a collector's treasure, House of Frankenstein, The Invisible Man Returns, Murders in the Rue Morgue, Werewolf of London, Tower of London, Dracula's Daughter, and The Mummy's Hand. Visit your local video retailer and ask for the Universal Studios Monsters Classic Collection. Classic monster titles I still, for the I, I watched that and price I was working at a Blockbuster for. video, which meant what? Employee discount, and I was ordering every single one of them when they came out. So I had that wall of, right. of, of all the mummy films and the Frankenstein, all that stuff, dude. We're working part-time at Best Buy. It was, yeah, you know, it's like, oh, employee discount on all this stuff. Yep, yep. I actually got in trouble because I would order a bunch of stuff in anticipation of payday coming, and new stuff, all the special order material that I had ordered, was just stuck in a, under a counter taking up space because, well, payday <laughs> hadn't happened yet. It's like, no, 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 just hold on till till Friday. Derek, you can't keep playing. Just give me till Friday. <laughs> I suppose since uh, we've started talking about the film kind of a roundabout way, we ought to at least give a little yeah, synopsis. Of that's what's kind of where on. I wanted to go. Um, I started rambling, and I think we ended up going somewhere else. But yeah, so this movie takes place several years after House of Frankenstein. Uh, we have Dr. Edelman played by Onslow Stevens, who I think doesn't get talked about enough. Uh, in the Universal monster, and I know he only did the one. This one movie is what he's known right. for, I guess. But he's fantastic. He's great. yeah, no, he's great. He's he's really really good. I I thought earlier, you know, it's almost too bad they couldn't have had Lugosi playing Dracula and then Carradine playing 
the Edelman character, and then I thought, Onslow Stevens is so good. He really and he's is. He's not someone we see in a lot of other horror films. He's I didn't even realize until I looked it up that he's actually one of the generals in them, which is yeah. of course a great film. And I think he's in The Monster and the Girl, that that's one of the one of the monster ape films. And, but I don't remember I what character so he's in. And it, certainly I never kind of noticed him and said, hey, that's Dr. Edelman in another film. I but noticed uh, on his credits that he's in a movie called Life Returns from 1935, which I own, but I have never watched because I fear we're going to see footage of a dead dog in it and I don't need to see that. Oh, okay. But, but it's a movie in which characters are trying to bring life to death, bring something back to life. And he plays one of the scientists in that. So it was kind of cool. I thought, okay, we got the scientists trying to bring life back to death. And then he eventually gets around to working on the Frankenstein monster. So I thought it was kind of neat. So cool. I'll, I'll have to look that up and see if I can find it. Cause that would be, it's that'd public be fun domain. to see, but he's, he's not in any of the other universal classics no. that I know of, not even in a minor part. And he's terrific at this. He's anyway, he's, he's playing a kindly doctor who mm -hmm. is on, has a seaside mansion uh, or castle in Viseria, which is where a lot of the, the fake universal uh, country, it's the fake country that a lot of the universal films take place. It's like Ladferia from Marvel, right? Right, right. <laughs> And this time it's on a seashore where before, I, I think we've always assumed it was landlocked in Middle Europe somewhere. But it, it's a cliffside house and he's he's running, uh, he's doing experiments to help mankind and he's a doctor and he's helping all the local people so he's beloved. And suddenly one night Dracula shows up at his house and says, hey, I'm having some trouble uh, and I'd like to be cured of my lust for blood, please. <laughs> And Edelman's such a nice guy. He's like, yeah, sure. I mean, yeah, you're. I know you're a vampire, but we'll see what we can do. Come back. Well, at night. first he's not. He's like, I don't believe in vampires, but I believe that you believe you're a vampire. So. Right. <laughs> yeah, because this is, you know, this is made right near the end of the war where yeah. the shift was happening, even though they we all didn't know it yet, from from supernatural horror to scientific horrors and right. this film kind of straddles that that middle ground where the supernatural monsters show up at dr edelman's looking to be scientifically cured so we get first dracula shows up and there's a great scene where he takes uh, the doctor into the basement of his own house and there's dracula's coffin and yeah. the and the doctor's like, well, how did this get here? And Dracula's like, well, since you don't believe this is supernatural, let's just say you left the door open. <laughs> I love that. I love that. See, when I first saw this film, when I first saw House of Frankenstein as well, I was disappointed because Carradine's no Lugosi, man. He's not. But that moment made me love Carradine as Dracula. Yes. You know, no, he's not Lugosi. Lugosi's tops. But that moment made me love Carradine as Dracula. It's like, let's just say you left the door unlocked. <laughs> and that's a great moment. There's a, you know, since we're talking Carradine, great moments. There's a great moment at the piano with oh, uh, God, Melissa, yes. who's one of the heroines in this film, where she's playing, I think it's Moonlight Sonata by Beethoven or something like that. A yeah. Romantic piece. And then suddenly she starts playing weird stuff because... Dracula is standing next to her and is kind of focused on her as a victim. That's a great moment 
oh, to a so great good. Dracula moment within this film. Anyway, it's, Dracula shows up to be cured, and no sooner is he left than who sh- who else shows up saying, "You have to help me." But Lawrence <laughs> Talbot, the Wolfman, has all also showed up to be cured. Yep, uh, which is it's a pretty darn good setup, I have to say. For um, it doesn't hold well with the the continuity from the end of the previous film. Because apparently there was there was going to be another film in between that maybe had a little better continuity, but then, which was the Wolfman meets Dracula, Wolfman versus Dracula, and I've read the script to that, and it starts off great and then completely falls apart. Oh, it's too bad. <laughs> which is a shame. But you can actually get a copy of it on Amazon. I think it's by Philip J. Riley. Okay. Yeah. Who used to, who used to be someone who was like a friend of mine on Facebook and sadly passed away a number of years ago, not too long after I found these cool things that he was doing. Anyway, so the continuity is not really great, but it's, again, it's the 1940s, and we don't have, we're not going to say, hey, weren't they weren't they somewhere else the last time we saw them? Even though Universal had kind of been doing that previously, there's still that, ah, people aren't going to remember that we killed the Wolfman and Dracula in the last picture, so let's, let's start with that. Let's just start fresh with them. Except... Except <laughs> <laughs> when we find Frankenstein, it's totally wrapped up in the continuity. Kind of. It is. Or at least we reference it enough. So like, wait, what? But they just, what? Okay. Why there should really be a bridge film in yeah. between. And I, I don't know that Wolfman versus Dracula was meant to be the bridge. Because what I, what I read over the last couple of days about this was that the Wolfman versus Dracula actually was the basis of this film. But I've read it, and it's like if it was, it's a very di- it must have been a different version or something because it's the two are nothing alike except you do get an explanation for how at least the Wolfman is revived in the screenplay. Right. So, yeah. So it's like oh, forget about these two characters being dead, but here's a Frankenstein monster with Boris Karloff in its arms, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which happens because of uh, a circumstance with the Wolfman. So the film is about the monsters coming to be cured or revived by Dr. Edelman. And he's got two beautiful nurses working for him, one of whom is a hunchback, played by Jane Addams, is Nina, who is a character that I've always loved since the first time I saw it. It's like Oh, she's fantastic, isn't she? Yeah, she's really great. Oh man, she's so and I mean she's Hippocratic oath, altruistic. I mean, she's just just a good person, you know. It's like we only have enough mold for, uh, the special mold for one surgery. Well, don't waste it on me. Don't you waste it on me. It on we'll this get other me guy. later. Yeah. Mr. Talbot, because he's suffering the tortures of the damned. Yeah, yeah, she's a great character. How fantastic is that? And and props to the screenwriters and the creators for deciding to make a, a really attractive woman a hunchback you know hey we need a hunchback for this oh why why don't we make it the attractive assistant nurse that is not where i, I don't know if I'd, I'd have thought of that right and uh, you know but uh edward t Lowe jr dwight v babcock and george bricker somewhere in that stew of people and this was all written during the studio system so there were a lot potentially a lot of writers and a lot of drafts, a lot of revisions that went through this, but somehow they came up with that cool idea and this great character who's, you know, I, if you're, you have em, any empathy at all, you probably feel for her about, about as much as you do for the Wolfman. Yeah. 
So it's pretty fantastic. Yeah, so they're there trying to cure people, and of course it goes wrong. <laughs> because of course it does. And in this particular case, the story does seem a little bit more connected. Whereas House of Frankenstein, like you said, it feels like it could have been two or three different little mini stories. It's kind of a little road stories. picture. Yeah, exactly. Whereas this one, it's all connected for the most part. You you probably didn't even need to have Frankenstein in here to make it a good movie. Right. Frankenstein's monster being thrown in there. I get why they did it. And I'm glad they gave, you know, Glenn Strange some work. Cool. Right. Um, even if he spent a lot of it freezing to death and drunk out of his mind because Lon Chaney told him drinking would help keep him warm. <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, I, he's laying around in a bunch of cold mud. You know, I, I, I you got to do something. I'm not whatever. Right. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, and that is a complaint that some people have had about this. And I could see that that the, the Frankenstein monster doesn't really have a lot to do in House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula. He kind of shows up, gets in the final battle, and then the film ends. Because these films are super short. They really are. In terms are. of what we think of as full-length features. They're like, I think this one is 67 minutes. Yep. And I, I think House of Frankenstein is probably not much longer if it's longer. They're very short. They're under 70 minutes long, which is sad in a way because part of you is like, oh, I'd really like to see more of the Wolfman, more of the Frankenstein monster, more of the mad Dr. Edelman, because sadly uh, our hero has a, <laughs> he has a problem during the yeah. film thanks to Dracula. Um, but on the other hand, it's like these films are bang, 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 bang. You get in, you get the characters in, you establish the, the problems, you move the plot forward, and then you're out. And yeah. there's very little wasted motion in them. Although I was sad that this one didn't even have a... Universal used to do the a good cast is worth repeating and give you the, the title nope. credits at the it end. just the end. This one, bang, the end, blackout, everybody leave the theater for the next show. Yep. So it's hard to argue with films that are this tight though. Now the director, Earl C. Kenton, uh, his directing career goes back to uh, 1919. And most of this film work prior to 1925, were all shorts. So yeah, super short, super tight, get in, get out, do your thing, and then move on to the next one or move on to the next setup or whatever. Uh, he had a heck of a career. There are so many movies and television series in it, under his name. Yeah, uh, this is you know, he mean, also he did from House the, of Frankenstein, he went from and the Frankenstein, and all these others. So he went from the silence into the 1960. Yeah, you know, with television, and so he, he had a huge, broad career. Although when you look at IMDb, the things that he's known for are House of Frankenstein, House of Dracula, Ghost of Frankenstein, and, sure. and one of the, and uh, 1936, I think it's a, a Western. Uh, yeah, it's got to be it's the same great picture. Yeah. So it's like he did a head on career, but the things people remember are these cool Universal monster movies. That he did. Have you ever seen the Cat Creeps movie he did after this? Mm, I'm not. I think so, but I wouldn't I, swear. I haven't, but it looks like he's kind of got like a good haunted house vibe, which looks kind of cool. So, right, I think maybe I have, but those are kind of films that tend to blur together for me yeah. after a while, and I've seen an awful lot of them. So maybe, maybe not. There's and there's one of those that's lost that I can yeah. never remember yeah, which of one course, it is. Right? <laughs> yeah, I can never remember which one it is, but I know it's one of these old dark house cat yeah. creeps. Uh, you know. Uh, the sh the shadow in the basement kind of things, so maybe the answer is maybe. Mm -hmm. 
Well, as you were saying, Dracula shows up and things kind of go awry. Uh, what's interesting to me is that Dracula, by Carradine, truly seems like he wants help. Right. He's done. He doesn't want to, and he's not going to introduce a new strain of robotic plague to end the whole thing. He's <laughs> right. He's just going to find a doctor to help him out. Right, because it's the, it's the end of the war, and we're you moving know? into the atomic age. We let's, can solve anything. Right. Uh, unfortunately, things kind of shift a little bit, and I think it's when he realizes this other nurse that's there is somebody from his, I mean, for lack of a better phrase, his former life of being just a full-on bloodthirsty vampire dude. Right. And yeah. those feelings start to come back, and he starts trying to seduce her and take her under his control. Right. And I now want to he's be sure as a vampire, yeah. but as long as I am, can't I just bite one of your nurses and take her away with right, me? Right. Can't I just have the pretty blonde? Right. Really? You got another one and you're going to fix her. Can I have this one? Right. Yeah. Um, but yeah, those exactly. moments, that, that piano sequence. I don't know that if mentioned we mentioned earlier, that Nina the Hunchback amazing. is also going to be cured by Dr. Yeah. Edelman. I he's, think de kind of he's developed a miracle cure that allows him to reshape bone and all sorts of yeah. things. And, and is going to fix the wolf man through surgery, through this surgeryless surgery. And he's also going it has to do with like mold that they're growing. And I, it's sciencey, but it's, it's, it's reverie science, but it's, it's still pretty, it's still pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, but I, bought I do it love kid, that. I bought it. I do love that piano moment though. The moonlight sonata and the music she gets into playing that just, Oh, so good. And they even press in on the eyes of Carradine trying to get the hypnotism angle going that they do with Lugosi and his eyes. Carradine's eyes aren't nearly as great, but they're still pretty good. Right. And they're not as pretty good amazing. The, they don't do the pinpoint spots, but there are a couple of more than more than one or two scenes where Carradine looks at the people and the Salter and Skinner hit hit their music cues. Oh, and you're like, so oh, good. he's he's completely <laughs> He's completely hypnotizing these people. So they're all, they're all screwed. They've they've put their, <laughs> they've let the fox into the hen house. Yep. And now he's still a fox. So I, and that, and that's I love wonderful. That, I love the Edelman. Is, throughout all of this, up until when he finally accepts that Dracula is trying to take out one of his nurses, he's still. Oh, that turning into a werewolf thing, that's just pressure on the brain where it makes his body do this. And he may as well have just said, you know, it's just psychosomatic. You know, I just... Right. And, and, and I love that. <laughs> well, he basically that. does say that. Yeah. And when they find the Frankenstein monster's corpse, he's like, oh, well, hmm. that's interesting. What an interesting scientific discovery we just have underneath my I, castle, I think, coincidentally. I think I'll ramp him up a little bit. Why not? Let's and poke around back. and see what happens. At which point, you know, Nina, the wonderful nurse, is like, talks him out of it and it's like oh wait that's never happened to these movies right you know so that's good. a bad idea <laughs> so and good then, and he listens so now which is very cool there's also a very cool uh scene where edelman has been infected by dracula and there's yeah. kind of that universal swirl and it's <laughs> it's a combination of flashback and flash forward where you see him the kind of his dark side thinking yeah. the things that he could do if if he accepts the you know falls under the dracula power and stuff and part some of it is the frankenstein monster running rampant in some clips from other films but there's also a scene that in that little montage that i've 
I honestly did not remember where he has actually cured Nina. Yeah. And she's no longer hunchbacked and is walking down the stairs. This is like a beautiful young debutante. Yeah. And I'm like, I did not remember that that was part of his little Faustian dream and temptation here. And that's, that's, that's a very cool moment. And for all the fact that they were, the people producing these films were churning them out and churning them out fast. There's still little grace notes in them that mm-hmm. are like that, that are the mark of really good movie making, even on a, a low budget, even on a tough time frame. Here's that, what I love and, about that sequence. I love all the stuff that we see. I love that because of the sequence, the Frankenstein monster is played by four different people in this film. <laughs> all the stock footage we see Karloff and Cheney and Eddie Parker, the stunt double uh, <laughs> playing Frankenstein. Cause we get shots from previous Frankenstein films. But what I really love about this sequence is that, yeah, we get that kind of supernatural, woo, you know, flashback stuff, but it started by symbols and symbology of science, electricity swirling around. It, it starts from a scientific point and then moves into that. And that to me just felt like a nice little touch for this doctor who is very, I don't believe it, but I believe that you believe it, supernatural right. kind of approach. So I like that through that, we, we see the science kind of fight, fade away as Dracula's presence and mind is taking over. Right. I really loved that moment. I thought that was a really nice touch, probably completely accidental, but I love it. And that's my takeaway from it. No, uh, no, I, I, I agree love all that, that. It's, it's kind of mad science turns into the supernatural. Right. Science turns into mad science turns into the supernatural. It's and I love cool. that. It's so cool. And some and, of the supernatural stuff that we do see in here. Yeah, I think it's I was... handled really, really well. The the reflections of the mirrors. Everybody yeah. talks about how you see Bela Lugosi in the mirror in like Abbott and Costello or, or the original Dracula or whatever. There are some great mirror shots in here yeah. where you don't see Carradine in the, in the reflection. or you Even see... though you see this whole room yes. around him and the, the so woman, great. he's walking across the room. And I'm, I was watching that and I was going, did they, I don't see the split screen lines there did they it had to be maybe they did a double set and had a someone walking it's it's just something it's amazing and And then onslow stevens fading away in his reflection when he's looking in the mirror so it's really good and the wolfman transformations aren't just still fades the wolfman's face kind of twitches and changes when they they're doing the fades here and it's really some of the most effective yeah wolfman transformations and really it's really cool and mm-hmm. we know jack pierce was brilliant at this and all his this makeup is the last work thing is he cool. did for them for these monsters the first yeah. time he worked on them so yeah which is you know it's it's so sad in some ways but that's yeah. that's the downside of the studio system it's once you were you know once they were on to something else you were cut loose into space and, yep. you know, Pierce was off, like most of these people, off fending for himself when Universal moved on to other things. Then, since we're still talking about the supernatural stuff in the film, Dracula's vampire bat and his transformation to and from the bat have never looked better than they do in this film. They're exactly just great work. Really great work. I was you paying know, attention and, to the bat in particular, and the wings are articulated for crying out loud. It's not yes. just, you know, a, a two-point kind of flappy, flappy. They're 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 moving around. It's looking it's, good. 
it's the best rubber bat in yeah in a, a, an old horror movie by far even mm-hmm. if this time because of the blu-ray there was a scene where early on where it's like oh look they've got four or five wires on that bat sure which is something you probably would not have seen in the movie theater and right. you wouldn't have thought to look for it no there's a bat outside the window you're not saying oh look at the strings on the bat but it's still it's a it's a great prop and the transition from prop into into actual vampire is super impressive and sometimes i know abbott and costello has a really good uh walter lance animation transformation for bela lugosi too but it's it's very similar to what's in this film and this film is a number of years earlier and and they really went for it and they also have some great moody shadow play things where sometimes oh. the the violence you're seeing is only seen in shadow and stuff and it's there's it's one just shot a really well made little picture it really is. You were when we said earlier about the eyes, they didn't put the little pin lights in the eyes of Carity. It's like they didn't do a lot with extra light, but boy, they did a lot with shadow. And there's some really cool moments, especially towards the end when Onslow Stevens is kind of running around town, Dracula eyes, and uh, he's <laughs> running around. And there's a moment where he is running like away from the camera, but toward a light source or the other You're way right. around. And, and his, his shadow, shadow is, is getting larger growing. and larger. It's yeah. looming over you as it's building and building and building. And it's so well done. Uh, there is some really good blocking and cinematography in here as well with Lon Chaney, with Lawrence Talbot. As Lawrence Talbot, not as the Wolfman, which again, I thought was super cool, facing off against Frankenstein's monster. These shots, yep. they look like things I could have seen in a comic book. They were so well done. That's the beauty of, you know, we've talked a little about the, the problems with the studio system, but the beauty of the studio system is that you can churn out, mm-hmm. you know, a film this good with this many great performances in it in such a short amount of time. Yeah. It's really astonishing, and that's probably one of the reasons why the universal films are so beloved by all of us is because yeah. even even though they were, you know, and I've used this word a couple of times and I don't want it to sound terrible, even though they were churning these out, the the level of the production on them is still far outstrips anything you saw in other horror movies before or or until Hammer started doing their horror series where you know, they were dedicating the same kind of resources to doing one picture after another picture after another picture. When it came to, like, the gothic horrors, I totally agree. I think once we start getting into, like, the sci-fi type horror stuff, you start seeing other studios make some really good attempts and efforts like them, for example. Yes. But when it comes to the gothic stuff, Universal was the king. They were the king. I mean, we had, yeah. you know, we had the, excuse me, the Return of the Vampire and, and you know, other things. There were There were individual films sure there were that approached the universal uh, level of quality and we could probably do all podcasts about that we should like three that could have been universal or something but overall the other films you saw from other other studios yeah you know maybe people might argue that mgm didn't care to do these mm, yeah probably but they also could <laughs> They weren't as good. You know, I I like MGM's Spencer Tracy, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Sure. But it's not as good. as I don't like it nearly as much as any of the Universal horror films. 
not, oh, not a one, I don't think. You're, except maybe you're she absolutely right. except maybe she wolf of London. <laughs> yeah, the these are really, really solid films. They really knew what they were doing, knocking it out of the park every and, time. And there's no wasted motion. It's just like Yeah. Okay, we can we can get this done in seventy minutes. Bang, 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 and you're done. And one of the things I was sad I didn't have time to look up over the last day was figuring out how they played these in the theater, whether they were the the A picture at the end, which I think they were, or if they they were B picturing them with something else. But I don't think so. I, I don't know, and I didn't have time to look, and I wish I had. Let's see. Previewed in November. It was released, released in December. December. On a double bill with the Daltons right again. <laughs> well, there you go. So they were they were doubling up, and I thought that's probably yeah. what they were doing. It was a Lon Chaney double feature, is what that was. <laughs> well, exactly, and you got two different, you know, potentially two different crowds coming into the theater because most of the theaters, most or all of the theaters, were owned by the studios back in the day. That was yeah. before they were forced to break up the studio distribution to their own theater thing. So. There would be, you know, the Universal Theater here and the MGM Theater there, and and they weren't necessarily called that. But that's the way it worked back at the time. Right. So yeah, though no, it doesn't. And I'm sure that the Dalton probably played before this, though I could be wrong. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Because this know had, to... you know, this had, they put some stars behind this. They had some, you know, it was the last hurrah almost of the Universal monsters. It it really was, and and I want to talk about that because again I said at the beginning of this there have been a lot of people that have kind of dismissed. I was actually surprised in the little research that I did that people are dismissing Abbott and Costello as not part of the cycle. I've always considered it part of the cycle. I don't understand why you wouldn't. It's got all the trappings. It's got all the characters. It's got everything going for it. I don't understand why you don't consider it part of the cycle other than. It's a comedy and people don't want to laugh. I don't know. Well, and it doesn't fit the continuity. And that's, I mean, you could say that same thing with this. It doesn't, it doesn't, you know, it's like, where does it fit in to the universal psycho? I mean, I would tend to think that it would fit in between the two house movies, but then you have the question of, well, then how does the Frankenstein monster end up back in the pit? But that's the, that's the trouble with the end of the cycle here is that they didn't care. (laughs) about yeah. the continuity they ju- they kind of did they only cared about the continuity when it was cool to for the story you know so if we remind people of the frankenstein monster being in in the bog with boris karloff that's it's cooler for the frankenstein monster to be found with a, a skeleton of a mad scientist than it is for him to just walk in through the door and say, cure me the way the other monsters are, right? So yeah. they, they cared, but they didn't care. And Abbott and Costello is kind of the prime example of, they just picked the, the characters up. They picked them up and said, okay, we're going to, we've got this guy from Frankenstein. We've got Bela Lugosi. Why did we not use him again <laughs> before this film? And we've got Lon Chaney as the Wolfman still. Let's just put them all together. We can do that, right? And I, yeah. I, I love that film. I love it dearly. And, and oh, it's deeply. great. It's fantastic. But, but where does it fit? And and I know that you're one of those people that thinks, well, the Wolfman had a relapse and it fits in after. And there's I mean, that, that's, that's one of the arguments, sure. And there's that great 
uh, Return of the Wolfman book by uh, you're going to have to remind me uh, who, Jeff Jeff Rovin. Jeff Rovin, right? And that's a great book that assumes that the Wolfman in that film is the it came after the House of the House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula, and and he really makes it work. And that's a a really superb version of the Universal Monsters that he he, really he does in that in that book, which kind of caps off the series in a way. So I, I think the continuity bothers some, some people. I think that the, the comedy bothers some people, but there's always been at least a little comedy in the universal monster series. I mean, obviously things like the invisible man and right of Frankenstein, all the James whale stuff. Come on. Right. And even in house of Dracula, there's that, that annoying villager (laughs) whose name I don't remember who's like the brother of the other guy that gets killed. And he's like, he's kind of creepy and weird, but also a little bit of that universal comedy character. Skelton Nag, Skelton B. Nag is the actor. And he's, I mean, he's a great character actor. Oh my God, it's a great look. But even if we go to, and I think this came up in uh, a comment you made on somebody's Facebook post the other day about the Karloff Lugosi black cat. Even in that there are some side characters that have some comedy. Yep. And that movie is considered one of the scariest, most terrifying of the universal cycle. Well, and it's, it's certainly one of the grimmest. I mean, it's, yeah. <laughs> so even in that, you've got the laughs, man. Right. Yeah. Even in that, you got a little chuckles because they, they, that was part of how the horror films worked. And, you know, and Shakespeare knew this too, you know, not to completely compare, the universal monsters to Shakespeare, but why not? Because in all these serious Shakespeare tragedies, there's very often these little, they'd have the tragic act and then there'd be, you know, uh, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern. I'm going to use them just as an example because that's all that pulls to mind. There would be like kind of a little comedy sketch in between with two of the other characters while Romeo and Juliet are considering killing them themselves or or whatever right you know and and that's not obviously i'm not a shakespeare historian so i don't have the exact metaphors or the exact examples off the top of my head but i think that you can get what i'm talking about where Mm -hmm. comedy interspersed with tragedy or interspersed with horror has long thought to make the horror potentially more horrible as well as more bearable for the audience because you don't want the audience so you don't want the audience so terrified that they leave the theater, right? <laughs> yeah. There's there's a sense of playfulness and fun to these movies that I think sometimes some of the other studios didn't have. Mark of the Vampire, for example, which, you know, they tried, I'm sure, and, you know, I know you've got other issues. <laughs> right. Regarding that movie. But, you know, it doesn't have the sense of playfulness that these these movies do. You don't have right. the song of the new wine in the middle of something. You don't have right. the two bickering, you know, people, the couple that happen to be along for the ride. And you don't have Carlo Connor screaming and running no, out of the room. No, you don't have the James Whale touches. You don't have any of that stuff. And you don't have Abbott and Costello doing what they do best. Abbott and Costello, who are some of the only people that stayed on contract with Universal when they started cleaning the house. Right, so, yeah. You know. Yeah, I, I noticed that too. It was like the people they... They kept on his house include Deanna Durbin, who uh-huh. is, uh, if you've never seen Deanna Durbin, she's like 
a, a singer and actress kind of beyond the level of Judy Garland. She's like mm-hmm. Judy, no, no offense, Judy. She's like Judy Garland without the drug problems. Sure. <laughs> she's amazing. So I was like, yeah, I could see you keeping her. And Abbott and Costello were, you know, they kept like five people on, on contract as the studio changed hands right around now. And uh, Abbott and Costello were two of them. You could see why. You know, they were, she got to go with her, your big breadwinners, especially yeah. at the end of the war when people's tastes are changing. Maybe people's sick of are sick of grim horror stories after you know four or five years of of people blowing each other up and shooting each other in europe so that makes yeah. sense but it's it's hard hard life living in the studio system where that that kind of stuff happens or any corporation and so but yeah, on the so other th- hand that's how we end up with people like Onslow stevens more than likely in a movie like this when he has no business being in a movie like this but you know he's great Right, yeah, because he was a studio contract player. They were like, who can we fill this with? And somehow somebody said, hey, he'd look really good in a beard and fright wig. <laughs> right, yeah, definitely. Let's put a little bit. I love that they put a little bit of old age makeup on him. And, you know, I'm sure it passed just fine back then. Now that we have it on Blu-ray and everything, it's like, oh, yeah, we can see. You're wearing makeup and powder in your hair. I, I get it. But it, I like it, that they did that. still looks pretty good to me. It still looks pretty good. It not bother me at all. I'm glad they did it, though, because then it allowed him to be able to do some of the more physically active stuff when he's being right. controlled by Dracula, and they didn't have to go to a stunt double for everything. Right. Um, no, I'm not saying that he did all of his own stunts. I don't think that's true at all. But he was able to be a little bit more lithe and limber. And, and yeah, It looked like he was crawling across the roof and stuff there, though. But, yeah, and that was great. Yep. Great moments. Yeah, so Abbott and Costello, af- after this, where it fits in the continuity... I, in some sense, I don't think it really matters because even though the, the comedy is there and the comedy is the the big thing in that film as opposed to being a little break or a little sidelight in the other Universal films, the monster story in Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein is still a really good monster story. Yep. And the monsters are played straight. The monsters yep. generate some laughs, but only because of the situations they're in, not because they're being absurd or ridiculous or, you know, Herman Munster, for instance. And that's nothing against the Munsters, which is a, a show I really enjoy uh, as a kid and still enjoy. So, yeah, it's it's hard to say. I think the continuity, for people that don't accept it, Derek, I think it's, I think the continuity problem is the problem. But then, how's the Dracula? Has some pretty serious continuity problems. Sure. <laughs> As they, all do. On. they all and, do. And yeah, yeah, most of them do. They it it's more obvious in this one because in the previous ones they always explained to you why the people that looked like they were dead were not dead really. Or how they came back to life. Right. It and here they're just like, oh no one's gonna remember we killed them. <laughs> just have them show up because we got it we got seventy minutes and we need to get this done. Just right. we can't we can't give everyone's origin story all the time, guys. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and that's true. I I'm sympathetic to that. Especially um, since there are so many revivals or attempted revivals of old characters now that decide to start with the origin story and it all it does is slow the film down. So bravo, Universal. Sure, just drop the wolf drop the Wolfman and Dracula back into the continuity and we'll we'll assume they get out of the last the last fix they were in somehow. 
I love these movies, man. I love these Universal movies so much. I don't. I feel like sometimes in my efforts to talk about all monster movies, I don't talk about the Universal stuff enough. And really, they're they're part of the building blocks, not just of horror cinema or cinema in general, but me as a monster kid, as a fan. These are the movies. These were the first round of movies that I saw. These were the thing. These were the ones that I yeah. collected and and obsessed over and loved. And I don't talk about them enough. So to have an opportunity to revisit something that, you know, and I said it already. I didn't like it the first time I saw it. I was disappointed. I was like, oh, man, you did that to Dracula. Oh, man, that's how it ended, you know. But now that I watch it, you're like, dude, you were a dumb kid. And uh, <laughs> this is a really good flick, man. I have my dumb kid movies, too. <laughs> Certainly some of them are probably somewhere in the universal cycle. But I love these movies. Yeah. I, I never get tired of them, and I can watch them over and over again. Yeah. And I've loved them since since I was a little kid, sure. since I first started seeing them on, uh, on Boston's WCVB horror classics late at night with introductions by Frank of Roosh, who uh, apparently never actually wore, I, we never saw him, but he did another show on Sunday where he wore a tuxedo, which was like classic films or something like that. I don't, I don't remember exactly what the title of it was. So I always pictured him being in a tuxedo <laughs> as, as he introduced these, his voice introduced these horror classics late at night. And they used to play two of them every Saturday night. And my brother and I would sit in the sit around the tiny black and white set in our in our house and watch them. Right on, dude. Uh, just to kind of give people an idea in terms of what was happening with Universal when this movie came out, we had a few more horror movies starting to come out around this time. The next genre picture to be released by them was Pillow of Death, the final Inner Sanctum film, uh, and then Steve's favorite, She Wolf of London, came out. Um, at some point we also had things like house of horrors with rondo hat and spider woman strikes back which i've never seen but it keeps turning up on horror movie lists that i know i should probably watch i think that's another rondo hat film isn't it yeah yeah uh, yeah it is it's kind of like a almost a sequel to sherlock holmes and rondo hat film and so. universal was starting to distribute some things too like they had the u.s distribution of the uh anthology film dead of night which is fantastic um, so you've got some movies like that coming out as well, but this is definitely them getting away from a, the gothic horror stuff. And we're eventually going to start seeing the, uh, the more science horror start to come in and creep in. Right. Even the creeper stuff is not, it's not it's quite more dark horror. mystery than anything else. It's, there's no yeah. supernatural stuff going on. It's just a guy who doesn't look like us doing some things that we don't want to see him do. So, right. Yeah. So there was this. And then it basically stopped, except for the Abbott and Costello yeah. monster series. Yep. Yep. But it's a good film, and I recommend it. And if you don't, if you haven't seen it, you need you need to. I feel like you need to see this flick. It's great. I'm going to make sure there's a link in the show notes, of course, to where you can pick it, pick it up on DVD and Blu-ray and all that in the show notes. Yeah, please. a lot of them are available yeah. streaming too now. Yeah, but if you buy it physically through my link, I get like five cents or whatever. So there is, and you you definitely should do that. Yeah, and you'll yeah. always you'll always have them if you have the disc. There you go. There you go. But so, it's good stuff. Yeah, and if you like this, you'll probably like Doctor Cushing's Chamber of Horrors that I've written. Hey, I, I gave a lot you, of my I gave you your moment, man. It, it's and a lot of my <laughs> other stuff too. Yeah, but that that was so long ago. They've they've even forgotten that it's sdsullivan.com, man. Hey now, hey now. <laughs> 
Now nah, there will be a link in the show notes, of course. Um, because you definitely want to keep up with what Steve's doing because he's one of us and we want to see us succeed with getting more monster kid stuff out in the world. So definitely yeah, I, support. I love all you guys, gals, and everybody else out there, especially when you give them money. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes especially, but often <laughs> sometimes just especially. as much either way. <laughs> it's always nice meeting meeting people that love the same stuff you do. Yeah, no, and that and that's that's why I do what I do. Um, you know, it's just for the community. And I, I've talked a lot lately about changes happening, changes coming to MKR and that sort of thing. Um and yeah, one of those things that's not gonna change is is the community aspect. So that's what I love about the show. I love talking with old friends and new, and I love talking with Steve. Now, we did talk at the beginning of this off mic about whether or not we're going to do the Classic 5, and I'm going to hold off. I'm going to hold off on the Classic 5 because there is a new deck coming, and I, I want to—I want when the new deck to come out, I want that to uh, have some fanfare. So I'm like, oh, oh, we missed it. So we're going to hold off on the Classic <laughs> 5. But the Classic 5 will be coming back soon. Stay tuned for that. Cool. And of course, Steve will be on that on future episodes of the show, so you'll get to hear him play. So. Yeah, we've got a rally. Half half of a rally is coming up at some point. Yeah, we still too. need to finish that up at some point this year. Uh, yeah, if, that'd be good. If I have my way and I can make everything work schedule-wise, maybe in December is when we're going to knock that out. But then we've also got episode 600 coming at some point, yeah. and I don't know what I'm doing for that either. So Maybe, maybe that should be it. <laughs> I, you know, I, I've had some people want to do some see something like big, whatever so we'll see yeah, I hear that. we'll see what happens maybe we should do a big panel and have a bunch of us in or like short clips on a bunch of us doing uh all the same movie but in 20 minute segments or something. you know something know. something we'll figure it, it out it should be cool whatever it is as long as it yeah <laughs> just because there's so many changes happening for me anything that takes less work to do i'm all about <laughs> yeah there is that uh, Steve, thank you for doing this. Thank you for jumping in and, and doing this when I basically put you on the spot and, and said, let's do it. So thank you. I appreciate it. <laughs> well, you're very welcome. I'm, I'm super happy to do it. I love, I love this film. I love the, the series. Uh, any, anything that includes the Wolfman in it. I'm in. It's good stuff, man. It's hard to go wrong yeah. with Henry Talbot. It really is. The man, hmm. One of the greatest character in all in all of horror. Yep. All right, Steve. Thank you for doing this again. SDSullivan.com. Go check him out. Very you welcome. Can't get enough. <laughs> happy to happy to be back anytime you want me. I love this place. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Thanks to Kenny. Thanks to Mark. Thanks to Steve. Thanks to you for being here and being part of what we do here on Monster Kid Radio. If you have any feedback for the show, again, you can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or you can call and leave me a voicemail at 360-524-2484. It has occurred to me that I do have a voicemail right now that I'm actually going to sit on until next week's episode. In fact, next week's episode might be a little light on content that I'm creating. So if you want to contribute to next week's show in any way, Call in your favorite Halloween movies, Halloween traditions, thoughts on previous episodes of Monster Kid Radio, just in general Halloween stuff, whatever you want. 
within reason, I'd love to include you in the show. So please email me any audio content that you want to put together or just call and leave me a voicemail. And don't worry, it is a three-minute limit on the voicemail, but I can stitch voicemails together and make it smooth and sound like just one long voicemail. It's all good. I got you. I got you. But that's coming up next week. I can tell you right now, and I've not listened to it yet, but I've got like a 30-minute recording from Mark Matsky about Monster Bash. So we're going to be playing that next week at the very least. And yeah, I'd love to include anything that you've got as well. So call it in, send it in, and make sure you tune in. If you want to know anything about Monster Kid Radio, monsterkidradio.net is where you're going to want to go to follow up with everything that I've got going on, as well as everything going on with our various guests here on the show. There's, of course, links to Steve's book, Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors. If you buy anything through any of the Amazon affiliate links, I get a little bit of scratch back on that. So please consider supporting the show that way as well. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, Discord, Reddit, Patreon, and a whole bunch of other places. And, of course, on Twitch, where we're still showing stuff all the time now, basically. I tend to change out the programming once a week, at least. But, yeah, we're always showing stuff at twitch.tv slash monsterkidradio. And with that, we're at the end of the show. So, Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, not commercial. No derivatives, 3.0, unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Out Cold. That belongs to Bloodshot Bill, copyright 2022. You can find it on their album, Songs from the Sludge. It just came out, shoot, as of this recording, as of today. So go check him out. Let him know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. My name's Tara Kim Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. Ciao.